Hello and welcome to The Deep Dive, the podcast that explores the ideas behind the news. What follows is a rebroadcast of a programme that originally went out on the New Statesman feed. Please, if you like it, go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. Hello, I'm Ian Leslie and this is the New Statesman Deep Dive, a politics podcast that explores the ideas behind the news. In each show, we'll take a different political concept or buzzword and interrogate it until it screams for mercy. We'll be doing that with the help of an expert from the relevant field. Yes, we still believe in experts here on the Deep Dive. In today's show, we're going to discuss media bias. A phrase that is thrown around a lot but seems to mean different things to different people. We'll be getting stuck into this with our guest, but before we do that, I need to introduce my co-host on The Deep Dive, Stuart Wood, a.k.a. Lord Wood of Anfield. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Ian. Good to be Ernie Wise to Eric Morecambe. What a compliment. Stuart is a professor of politics and a practitioner. He's been an advisor to two Labour leaders, Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. He's worked at the Treasury and Number 10, and he now sits in the House of Lords. So he knows his way around the alleys and byways of Westminster and public policy in a way that, frankly, I do not. I'm here to ask the stupid questions. So I think it's worth Stuart and I just spending five minutes unloading our thoughts on the topic of today's deep dive before we invite our special guest to join in and essentially take over. So as they say on Dragon's Den, let me tell you where I am. When people talk about media bias, they can mean several different things, it seems to me, some of which are more useful than others. One of the less useful ways people use it is to call out political commentators who are offering an opinion. If a pundit or a newspaper puts forward a point of view or is explicitly aligned with a particular party or cause, then it seems silly to shout bias at them. A bias is only a bias if it's hidden. Another way people use it is to talk about the structural bias of the news media, to point out that most of our newspapers back the Tories, for instance. And this seems like a reasonable thing to remark on and to bear in mind, although I do think that people on the left rarely develop it much further than that. I mean, if it's true that much or most of the media has a bias against the left, the next question is, what are you going to do about it? How should you respond? Can you change it? Probably not. So what's your strategy? Blair and Brown had one answer to that. Jeremy Corbyn may have another. Either way, you need to go further than just using it as something to blame everything on. A third way in which the concept of media bias is used, and the one that to me is the most interesting and important, is to talk about the unconscious biases of journalists. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you that I think most journalists are honest. But they are subject to biases that they're not always aware of in the moment, like the herd effect the instinct to coalesce around a point of view that isn't necessarily right, but is safe, because everyone else in the media is saying it. And the great thing is that you can now see this happening in real time on Twitter. So I think journalists are actually much less biased ideologically than their critics understand, but they're biased in other ways. They're biased towards drama, towards immediacy and currency, often at the expense of depth of analysis. And that can lead them to get things out of proportion. Good example from the US election. If journalists had an ideological bias towards either candidate, it was Hillary Clinton. But the moment the Comey FBI story broke, they made a huge deal out of it, even though it wasn't that substantive or important relative to all the scandals surrounding Trump. And it may have cost Clinton the election. So those are my thoughts going into this. Stuart, you've seen the way that the press operates at Westminster at close quarters. What are your impressions? Well, firstly, I think there is a problem with media bias. If you look at polling, people in Britain are much more likely to think there's a media bias problem. In Britain, the left feel much stronger about media bias than the right. 
I think this goes back 30, 40 years to a sense in particular that the printed press was run by wealthy proprietors who had an interest in low tax, low regulation, non-unionised workforce, seminal moments like the whopping strikes, like the 1992 election. And recently you've had the emergence of resentment about media bias on the right, particularly against the BBC. But on the whole, it's a left-wing phenomenon in this country. It does exist, though, the way stories are framed, the way headlines are written, the choice of subject, the words are used. I don't think it's conspiracy behind it. Like you, Ian, I think it's more subtle than that. But I think it is conscious. I think people respond to the institutions they're in. Uh, there are legendary stories about people like Lord Dacus, po probably apocryphal stories, I should say, intervening in editorial writing about 6pm to rewrite the editorial. Most of media bias in the printed press is much more subtle than that. You respond to the agendas you perceive of the proprietors, of the editors, of the readership. I think that's the source of a lot of media bias. I think the blurring of the line between news and comment, which has been a long-standing issue, has become a much bigger issue in the advent of social media and 24-hour-a-day coverage. It's unclear what counts as a news story or as a comment story when, when you're just bombarded by different forms of news, and I think that has particularly put the backs up of a lot of politicians. I think politicians also don't understand journalists, and this compounds the problem. Politicians think journalists are politically motivated. I mean, political journalists, that is. They think they get up in the morning and want to screw the Labour Party or screw the Conservative Party. Actually, they're in the story business. Politicians don't understand that journalists like stories. And they know what back home in the proprietor and the editorial office, they know what kind of stories resonate most. So in that sense, there is a bias. But on the whole, they chase stories, and politicians don't understand that. And lastly, I, th I think there is this issue around the lobby system. The lobby system is a kind of institutionalised gossip system inside Westminster, uh, a world in which rumour, gossip, stories all sort of fly around. But one of the interesting things is the way the lobby emerge with an orthodoxy very, very quickly. A good example of this is Prime Minister's questions. When I first started working in politics in 2001, it would take hours and hours, really, for there to be a consensus in the lobby about Prime Minister's questions. You now get the consensus around 10, 12 minutes past 12 on a Wednesday afternoon, because Twitter enables this convergence to happen. And one of the fascinating things about political journalists in the lobby particularly in the printed press, is they don't like to depart from the central view about something. They don't want to be in the business of getting it wrong. And social media enables that convergence to happen. The combination of all this, I think, means that politicians are now massively on their guard against the political press in a way that wasn't true 10, 15 years ago. You look at Theresa May's team, Ed Miliband's team, who I worked for, Gordon Brown before him, Jeremy Corbyn now. They're all incredibly defensive and are thinking about ways of bypassing or ignoring them altogether. And I think that is a not welcome development. OK, let's introduce our guest expert. Laura Koonsberg is the BBC's political editor. She is highly respected by her fellow journalists. And like anyone in the kind of position she's in, she's no stranger to accusations of bias from various quarters. We are delighted that she has taken the time to be with us today. Laura, before we get on to the question of bias itself, Stuart mentioned the lobby system. Can you just explain how the lobby system works? That's a very good question, and it's not that straightforward. But there's, there's one central idea behind how the lobby system works, and it's not perfect, but I would say, and I suppose some people listening might think, oh, she would say this, wouldn't I? But I would say, and I do believe this very strongly, that the point of the lobby system, which broadly works, is that we're able to find things out on behalf of our audience, readers, TV, radio, whatever, that you otherwise would not be able to find out. 
And that really is the primary purpose of, of, of journalism, is finding out information, normally finding out information that politicians in particular don't necessarily want you to know. So the way the lobby system works is this. There's a group of journalists who work in Westminster who have the golden ticket, a lobby pass, to give them access to Parliament, its warrens, its corridors, to go into the public gallery, into the press gallery rather, and watch. But crucially... We have the, the right to stop any politician who might be passing you in the corridor and ask them what they think about any story at all. The most junior baby reporter can march up to a cabinet minister and try their luck with a question. And they have to answer. It's like hailing a black cab. They don't. They, they, <laughs> well, <laughs> I think actually not all cabbies. It will take you, you know, south of the river at this time of night. But I think that is the, the principle. It's about access. Now, no other political system in the world that I've covered, particularly in the US, do you have that kind of access. If you try to see a senator, you have to go through like 10 people. Even if you want to see somebody in Congress, you have to try to get it booked in, you know, a fortnight ahead. And what that means is that there are hundreds and hundreds of conversations every day taking place between politicians and the journalists who are lucky enough to work in parliament, which creates this sort of broad information stream. And we can talk about sort of pack mentality later on. But for my money, that means that for all the drama around it, for all the sort of conspiracy theories around the lobby, it does mean, in my view, that British punters are getting more access to information about the political system they live in than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Now, the other side of the deal, which some people have a problem with, is that what you don't do is name the people that you talk to unless they say that you can so those briefings, those conversations where you can go up and grab a politician, a minister or whoever else, if you're basically the understanding is that you're talking off the record. And then you might have an agreement about how you would use that information. Like if you could, if you would say, oh, well, can I say a minister or can I say a government source or can I say an opposition source or can I say a Labour MP or whatever. But the point is about getting information that otherwise we wouldn't be able to have, and therefore by extension, our readers, listeners, viewers wouldn't be able to get at. It's not perfect, but I think it works. I mean, devil's advocate question. Do you think it reduces the currency of the information, though? Because a casual aside, a bit of gossip can form a story as much as a deliberate briefing or an important fact. Well, I mean, a classic, when I worked for Ed Miliband, I remember someone saying something about something that happened in our office and it said a portcullis house source. Now, that could be the, the you know, the bloke who makes the coffee. I've never heard of portcullis house source before. <laughs> but, but, Just people listen, that's basically where MPs have their that, offices and their, hang out. Exactly. That's quite it's a lot. Sort of, it's, <laughs> it's the cafe and office centre, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, are you aware of the different levels of story there could be? Well, sure. and, and how does the reader or viewer know the difference? Well, I think as ever in any kind of journalism, part of our job is to weigh up the quality of the information you're getting. So, you know, if a backbencher who really doesn't like David Davis says something rude to you about David Davis in the TQ, that doesn't make a story. It might be a casual aside, it might be a this or a that, but I think as ever, the onus is on journalists to weigh up the quality of the information that they're getting in exactly the same way that it's a journalist's job if they turned up at some, I, I don't know if you were in a, covering a court case or you were covering a, there'd been some terrible road accident. The person who's there, who's witnessed the accident, who you can see has been involved, who's giving you the information, is going to give you better information than the person who happens to be walking alongside and you say, oh, did you see anything? And they say, oh, I didn't, uh, oh no, I didn't see anything, but it looks pretty bad, doesn't it? Those are fundamentally, those are two different qualities of information. So the grumpy MP in the TQ telling you something versus a proper 10 minute off the record conversation with a cabinet minister. 
of course, those are two different levels of information. Now, sometimes do people always use the information they get in the in exactly the right way? Probably not. Yeah. But I would really disagree with the idea that somehow everything is treated the same. Mm-hmm. And people use a kind of aside or a little tip in the same way that would something that's... Okay, so that's part of, part of your yeah. job is to exercise discretion Absolute. about what, what what's significant and what's not. Sure. Um, okay, so let's get back to, to bias itself. Because I'm interested in whether or, or if that system does, in a systematic way, bias your thinking. Or whether there's a pressure to think in a certain way because you are associating with a, quite a small group. So one of the criticisms frequently, you know, leveled at you and journalists in general is this Westminster village idea that you're all kind of thinking and saying the same stuff because you're all together all the time. Do you think that's a factor? And if so, are you aware of it? And how do you escape it? I think there's a few things to say on this. One, I think if you think of a press as diverse as the British press, then that belies that notion that everybody thinks the same. Now, yes, it's true that right now in the era that we're in at the moment, most of the papers tend to be on the right. But then you also have The Guardian. You've also got The Mirror. It's not the case, and I think it's important to make this point, that everybody thinks the same. That's just not that's just not the case. And I think in Britain we have a sort of a kind of feast, actually, if you like, of stuff that's available. And let's not forget also what's really important is it's punters are making the decisions here. They're deciding what they're going to buy and what they're, what they're going to read or what they're going to watch, whether they're going to watch me or whether they're going to watch ITV or whatever. And I think you can all too quickly get to a place where somehow it's the media making all of these decisions about who reads what and who consumes what. It's that people are deciding if they don't like a particular point of view or a particular paper, it goes out of business. If they don't watch a particular program at all, probably it's not going to get permissioned again. So, so I think that's a really important point to make. It's not the case that there's only one viewpoint. It's also not the case that there's only one type of thing on offer. So, for example, you know, me and the BBC, we'd have a fantastic news service on Newsbeat, which is presented a certain way for younger audiences. Or you've got, you know, the FT, which presents stuff in a certain way because they've got a particular audience, and then the mail over in one corner and the garden in another. So I think that's an, an important thing to, to say. It's actually really diverse. There are broad, of course, yeah. you know, broad, broadly, you can say most of the press right now is on, is on the right. One of the interesting things about the era that we're in at the moment is that for, for Theresa May, basically the only political pressure, more or less, not, not 100%, but broadly, the political pressure on her is all coming from the right. Yeah. And of course, that has a bearing on, you know, who's reporting what, because most of the pressure on her is from the right broadly and also inside her own party. But does that follow then that there's bias? I don't accept the two things are intrinsically linked like that. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? I don't think that the one, the kind of structure of the media does not mean that it doesn't follow, therefore, to, to me, that journalists are somehow biased. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a difference between that structural bias and sure. the kind of individual, you know, predispositions yeah. of, a, of a journalist. But do you think that, that, you know, working for the BBC, that's a very yeah. particular kind Absolutely. of role. And, mm-hmm. and within that environment that you've just yep. described, how do you see the role of the BBC? Is it is it to act as a counterweight to that kind of structural bias or is it? No, I mean, I'm, I'm broadly we're talking about the whole thing, but then to talk about the BBC, I mean, I think for me, one of the most important things about the British press that we have a jewel in that we have got something, an organisation that by law is required to be completely impartial. And so the BBC, but both we are within the system, but we're also slightly out of the system because we are doing a different job. You know, we want people to watch and consume what we do, but we're not trying to sell anything. So that does give us a, a, a different kind of a, a freedom in a way. 
and our rules are really simple. You report impartially on the same in the same way on everyone. You have the same basic journalistic tests of the kind of who, why, what, where, how, tests of efficacy, how is somebody doing, what's people's opinions on them, all that kind of stuff. We basically you apply the same tests. Now, of course, you apply the same tests to people in extremely different contexts. So the tests for different politicians at different stages are very different. So for example, right now we could say, well, in the, you could say for Theresa May is a very important test for her in terms of carrying parliament over Brexit. Right now for Jeremy Corbyn, there's a different test in terms of can he, does he want to, and can he sort of get into that debate? Or, you know, when somebody's just been elected, it was maybe a good a test for them of what kind of team can they pull together. If somebody, or on the other hand, has been Prime Minister for, if you think of David Cameron, if he'd been Prime Minister for five years, he'd set himself his own test in terms of successful EU renegotiation. But my, I suppose my point is the absolute driver of impartiality is the same for everybody. But of course, when they're operating in different contexts, they will be kind of measured in different ways, I suppose, is the way. So, I mean, it, I Stuart, mean, I think I'm. No, no, I agree <laughs> with that. Looking but, confused. No, not looking confused. <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking pensive. That's but, um, per- permanent okay. kind of. You know, my podcast look. Uh, got a good face for a podcast. <laughs> do you know I haven't um, done a podcast before? This is very exciting. Right. Yeah, I'm sure you've got better microphones than we Not do. Not at all. Actually, it's difficult to be impartial on some issues, isn't it? I mean, recently, for example, in the United States, a lot of the press are finding it very difficult when they hear something from the president, which is generally viewed not to be true. How do you report impartially on something it's not which true. isn't true? In right. a campaign, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. without picking any particular examples, in a, in a campaign where the scrutiny is much more on you to be impartial, presumably, sure. than in normal oh, times. Of course. What happens when yeah. a particular campaign says something that isn't true? Do you have to say, these people think this, but the opposition think it's not true? Well, well, so are... what is it to be impartial when there are claims of fact knocking around? Well, or... there, are, there are three things that all kind of mash up here, because there's impartiality, there's balance and then there's actually what what is either absolutely true or absolutely not true or actually sometimes more more often in politics has a grain of truth in it but is being used by one side or another to suit their own purposes first of all the most important thing is what is actually true and what is not true and if something is not true then we will say this is not true and you basically call it out and that's part of our job so for example uh, last week's budget Philip Hammond the national insurance rise the Tories have sort of tried to wriggle out of this being a broken manifesto promise by coming up with this technicality we have said on air repeatedly this is a broken manifesto promise right no but you know we made that call it is and we, we, we've said it so they're even they're, though technically they could argue and did argue that yeah, and you report that they have a technical i use a phrase something like they've tried to wriggle out of it on a technicality that's their right to do so we report that they say it's not but we also have robustly in our reporting that the government has you know the tories have broken a manifesto promise to do this they say that but we have reported you know that's fine or for example i mean there's some hilarious examples actually that have been this week which strays a bit into sort of the whole debate around fake news which is slightly different about bias but i think it's worth raising in the last couple of days over this week there were two very striking examples of politicians being called out or trying to change something that they said when they absolutely said it. So Liam Fox on Sunday sat in front of a giant big screen yeah. of a tweet that he had said about the about the Commonwealth and Britain's role in the world and all of the rest while saying to Sophie Ridge from Sky, excellent lobby colleague, I didn't say it. Well, 
and, and the okay. tweet sat there on and screen for a minute. Yeah. So anybody watching that, anybody yeah. then seeing the coverage of the pictures in the next day would know that he was trying to get out of something that he'd said previously, right? Also, Jeremy Corbyn over the weekend said that it would be absolutely fine to have a Scottish second referendum. Those were his words. They're given to the press association absolutely impartial, not political organization of huge renown, huge track record, all the rest. The next day, in an interview with State Programme, he tried to claim he hadn't said it. Well, he did He did say it. Yeah. And so here you go. Here's the video. Here's the clip. So I think a, a huge part of our job is when politicians say something, then they pretend they didn't say it. It's just to call that out, right? And be honest about that. So yeah. that's about being true. What's what's true? What did people actually say and what, they, what didn't they say? Then you get on to how they use facts, yeah. which is a different conversation. I mean, it's the same conversation, really. But it's but so if you talk about the three hundred and fifty million, which I think is what you were alluding I don't to, know what you're talking about, Laura. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's take that. Let's take that example. Let's take that. So, repeatedly during the referendum campaign, we asked leavers about the three hundred and fifty and said, "You're not being straight with people." Uh, we asked the question time and time again. And I know that I did it myself in interviews. The BBC repeatedly did it. A lot of people who were very unhappy about the result look back and think, oh, it wasn't challenged properly. I just don't really agree with that. I know that me and colleagues did. The difficulty with the 350, well, there were two things. The difficulty with the 350 is that there's a grain of truth in it, right? So like all good political slogans, it's not if it had been totally fabricated Mm. and complete nonsense, then it would never have flown but there was a complete grain of truth in it you could see that figure in spreadsheets that figure is there technically that was how much that was how much cash was allocated to be spent by the european union now yes loads of it came back yes it was technically never sent to brussels like we don't put a check in an envelope and off it goes but technically there was an absolutely as a figure it was there so it was there taken out of context but it wasn't Made, it wasn't made up. The problem also was then for the Remain campaign, they walked completely into the trap. They walked totally into the trap. So every time they complained about the figure, every time they bashed off a letter to the statistics authority or whatever, it worked for Leave because what Leave wanted was people to be talking about the fact that loads of money goes to the European Union. That's what they wanted to achieve. Yeah. They thought at the start of the campaign, oh, people don't really know how much money we spend on the EU. But is the moral of that story of... that politicians should ignore lies of their opponents because otherwise they end up speaking to the thing that the liars but, but want the to But the point about, about that is it was not a lie. It's exactly what I'm saying. Wasn't right. it, had, it been a, had it been a lie... Had it been totally fictional. Had it been a complete yeah. fiction, mm. but you could get into a debate about... There, there is a very difficult question about what you do if you're an opponent. Do you just let sure. something go by? And I'm not sure what the, what, what the answer to that is. But it worked for the Leave campaign. Every time somebody brought up the 350, the Out campaign were delighted. Well, can I ask you a related question on behalf yeah. of politicians? And this is, yeah. I'm not trying to dig into my sort of the demons of, of my own political past no, we're here. We're not going to go back to any of the so conversations that we had in no, 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 none of that, not at all. Um, but <laughs> we need a longer podcast. There's a, there's a certain, there's a certain category of stories yep. which I think a lot of politicians feel the, the premise is invented by journalists. So, for example, Corbyn under pressure to Right. What does under pressure to it means a lot of the time that journalists have decided from conversations that or maybe just between themselves that there is a question to be answered or or Fox forced to to, to deny something. Um, So an example from my time is there was a uh, 
there was this idea that Ed Miliband, when he was leader of the opposition, had what was called a 35% strategy. And when enough commentators and journalists had referred to it, it became sufficiently a fact for people to say to us, why do you have a 35% strategy? Or Miliband forced to deny he has a 35%. And we never had a 35% strategy. We, we, we had strategies which some people could interpret as having percentages attached to them. But the idea we use that term is just not true. Now, that story we felt just sort of built up and was thrown at us as, are you going to deny you've got one? Now, isn't there a category of story like that that, that emerges? Is that, is that a kind of bias? And if so, what is it? Is it a herd bias? Because everyone else is saying that Ed Miliband has a 35% strategy. It's okay for me to report it. It's a form of bias in the sense that it's, it's a story that isn't grounded in a fact. It's grounded in an opinion that gains traction. Right. And it may serve some people's agenda. It may just be interesting. But I, it's not systematically pro-right, pro-left, pro-Tory, pro-Labour. But I think it is the sort of thing that politicians in general get incredibly frustrated by, that they're forced to respond to things which aren't facts about what they're doing. Or Well, there's an interesting thing at the moment where Theresa May's team have made a very different decision is basically to respond to as little as possible. Mm. So in terms of this is a fourth number 10 team that I've covered, and their attitude to all of this is very, very different, where they basically try not to respond to anything. So, for example, the, the speculation that built up around whether or not she was going to trigger Article 50 this week, like as soon as it had gone through Parliament, built up and built up and built up and built up and built up based on one thing, which is as soon as the bill had finished through Parliament, she could technically have done it the next day. And there were kind of whispers and groans and all the rest around the place. But as far as I could see, sort of nobody senior no senior sources in government were saying everybody i was talking to was saying end of the month end of the month end of the month wouldn't go for next week don't think that's what's good but that's quite hard then to hold that if you're because you don't forget journalists are human beings too you know there's a there's also this competing pressure on everybody to get stories but i remember that story about the 35 percent, and i'm pretty sure also and i would put the bbc in a different category i'm pretty sure from memory that we didn't like do that story and this is where we stand apart because my bosses will say, well, if there's something interesting in the papers that they're interested in, they'll be like, well, can you go and find out if that stacks up? But if we don't think it stacks up, we don't do, we just don't do it. I mean, it's as simple as, it's as simple as that. That's that, you know, we get three billion pounds or whatever the latest thing is from the public for the purpose of being held to a different standard. And broadcasters also in general are, you know, they're, it's worth knowing there's very different sets of regulation for the print press and for broadcast media. You know, they're different things particularly during campaign periods but i think the kind of non-story that gets currency that does happen yeah i mean there's no there's no question that, that social happens. media kind of exacerbates that, it does I guess. but i yeah. think that those story what i would say in not in defense because i'm not here to defend anybody but i think stories that sometimes gain traction even though they're not necessarily rooted in something kind of grainy mm. sometimes do so because they play to a wider yeah truth they speak to a central truth about something. They speak to a central. They speak yeah, to a central that. truth, and I think that without going, going intruding too much on your no, no, own past private right. period, I think that sure. story, in particular, thirty-five percent story, did speak. It did kind of speak to a wider sure. truth. I understand. And okay. there was concern among lots of Labour MPs at that point that it wasn't ambitious enough, and that you were only going for the base, and you weren't, you know, so it, it sort of told you something 
else. And you do get, I mean, to take another example, when the, yeah. the, the story about David Cameron walking to or cycling to work and then yeah, the, right. the picture showing the cars right. behind him, it spoke to a central totally. truth, which was about whether totally. it was about spin or substance. So it, I understand exactly. these things work for both, both they ways. They do, they, and they work on all sides. And just as a final area to explore, mm. the attacks on you that, that come from either from... I was from wondering if we would get to that. Well, <laughs> you and, and other journalists, but from that come directly from the leadership of a party or on social media from, from the kind of more ardent supporters of, of uh, one party or another um how difficult is it for you not to let that move your baseline of what is objective because part of the reason they do it supposedly for certainly the kind of political operatives is to just kind of give you a bit of a nudge in one direction right so you feel like you have to compensate to avoid that do you struggle with that or do you just does it just go is it water off a duck's back i think the first thing to say is really important i don't feel that actually there have ever been any direct attacks on me from leaderships of any party i just don't i just don't feel that actually yeah. despite all the noise and let's face it there has been a lot of noise that i actually have as i would with any political party work hard to have good working relationships with the leaderships of of everybody and i was so i would completely I think that's probably kind of out there as a bit of a myth and it's just not the, it's just not the case. I think you just have to do your job, right? You do your job, you put your head down and you do your job and you don't look up your notifications on Twitter. Uh, I mean, that's it, but seriously, I mean, that, well, uh, I mean, Twitter is a really interesting, useful tool. It's kind of in lots of ways an exciting place to be, but, you know, it's also a megaphone for the kinds of things that people used to shout at their telly and now they send you a message. So, do you think Twitter's corrupted the ability of political journalists to do their job? Has it made it harder? Has it made it more? I think it's had lots of different effects. I think it's speeded up the news cycle mm. for sure. You know, a story can burn out in two hours, and you know, and a few years ago it might have made its way into the papers and then taken another day. Um, I think it has, in lots of ways, given us loads of new avenues of information because politicians use it. So that's really interesting. Politicians are responding themselves and getting involved much more directly. So, you know, what might have used to take an hour to do a ring round of 100 MPs and 20 of them might have picked up the phone to get a view of certain policies, you might now have actually 15 MPs on Twitter within half an hour or something giving their view. Now, the important thing, the most important thing in this context for our job is that you still phone the 100 MPs amongst your colleagues and you still talk to them. You don't just take the 15 who've gone on Twitter to sound off about whatever their view is. Because it's not everything, it's, it's a useful tool, it's an interesting tool, it can sometimes be ridiculous, <laughs> but it's not the real world, right? And it's not, and it's much. It's not? Oh, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry for listening to this pod po podcast. Mm. But you know, there, there, I, I think it's had lots of effects, and in lots of effects, I think are quite, are quite good, actually. I mean, for example, the, what we were talking about before, the, you know, Liam Fox and Jeremy Corbyn both over the last, couple of days saying oh I didn't say that and then actually online within 10 minutes everyone's going well here's the evidence you did right you know Nicola Sturgeon calling the SNP referendum again there are the clips of her saying once in a generation in 2013 you know within 10 minutes that's on that's online you know in terms of kind of calling out holding to account going hang on here's a different way of looking at this it's fantastically powerful but in lots of ways it can be quite an ugly place right you know because people can have a go at you and the most important thing, which is brilliant and one of the reasons why I love my job, but that makes it also quite kind of high, high jeopardy, is when people are into politics, they really, really believe in things and they really, really want the people on their side to do well for all the right reasons. So when it's not going well on any kind of objective scale and we report that, 
obviously people feel upset. Like, obviously people feel distressed about that sometimes. You know, and we have these conversations with people at party conferences or sometimes people come in the street and will say the most kind of extraordinary things because people feel distraught when their political party isn't doing that well. But that doesn't mean that the person who's telling you about that has somehow got an agenda against you. I mean, it's the most fundamental thing. It's one of the human being, it human like shoot the messenger, right? I think on that note, we're going to have to reluctantly wrap up. Laura needs to get back to the real world. Stuart and I need to get back to Twitter. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Laura, for joining our inaugural episode of The Deep Dive. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So we're now going to do a segment called Rant or Rave, in which Stuart and I take turns to choose a rant, something that's really annoying us about, so it could be anything, it could be something in politics, uh, it could be something from, from culture, or a rave, something that we absolutely love and want people to, to know about. This week we're going to start with Stuart, who I believe has a rant about press releases, is that right? I do. I thought, seeing as we've talked about media bias and the press, I'd pick something related to that. And my rant is about politicians' press releases. Politicians' press releases are essentially works of fiction that add no value to the world. They're invariably quotes attributed to someone who's probably had at most a casual acquaintance with the words used in their name, shoved under their nose by a political advisor like what I used to be. They're full of cliches like, this tells you all you need to know about, and the cat is finally out of the bag. And the total value that they add to the sum of human knowledge is basically zero. At their best, they give a stock sentence or two for journalists to put on paragraph 34 of the story to achieve balance or some semblance of there being a competition about, about something. But what they do actually, more insidiously, is they use language that gives grist to the mill for people who think that politicians are essentially in some sort of business of producing stock quotes, using language that ordinary people don't use. And each individual press release doesn't hurt anyone. But this industry of chucking them out again and again and putting politicians' names to quotes that are frankly pretty anodyne, I think is something that we could well do without. And are these press releases, are they coming from sort of leadership officer or from individual MP? Is there a particular kind of source of press release that often it's uh, are the most egregious? Yeah. Well, often it's just a, it's story number 33 of the day. There's a sense that you have to be on the pitch. You have to say something. Mostly the press release, I'll have a quote that doesn't really have anything to do with the actual story. It's just a chance for you to say, Labour, on the other hand, believes in X, Y, Z, or Liberal Dems believe in this. Interestingly, you're starting to get press offices like the Liberal Democrats, actually, in the laws, strange place, you might think, uh, who are putting out quite colourful and quite interesting press releases. I was going to say, what's the, what's the answer? What's the solution to this? Do we, we just stop issuing press releases, or is there a better way to uh, do wit it? Wit will be a good answer. A uh, bit of humanity would be a good answer. Not just chucking out a paragraph with footnotes and, you know, to be quoted after 12 p.m. on the bottom. A little bit of imagination might be good. I mean, it might ma I mean, look, politicians who are more authentic and are more interesting tend to get more rewarded these days. I don't see why the machines underneath those politicians shouldn't have those qualities too. Excellent rant on the scourge of press releases from, from Stuart. Um, I have a, a, a brief uh, rave, which is not about something political, uh, at least not directly. 
Um, well, yeah, maybe it is. It's the O.J. Simpson documentary, which is very long. It's like seven hours long. It's in three parts. It's currently on the BBC iPlayer. It won uh, an Oscar for Best Documentary this year. And I'm just sort of halfway through it at the moment. It is absolutely gripping, totally absorbing. An education about American recent American history, about the role of race, race relations in American history, and also about this character... O.J. Simpson, who, if you're British, you only have a very sort of partial view of, of who he is because you didn't grow up with him. You didn't see what an amazing American football player he was. Now, I don't know anything about the NFL, but just seeing the footage of him running, I mean, he's so graceful. He's a sort of Roger Federer of the sport, and he was one of the all-time greats. He then went on to build, very consciously build, in a sort of almost David Beckham-like style, a career as a celebrity, and was very smart about the way he did it. And then came to this, this well, brought himself to this this terrible end, because actually, it turns out, you know, he's an absolutely appalling human being underneath the image just watching that story unfold is i found it really gripping Stuart, it is weirdly i'm also halfway through it i think i know how it ends i think he gets off uh, <laughs> but uh, nah. and then and then goes goes to prison obviously at the end but it's got this central idea it's, it's like all great documentaries or great books which are about factual things it, it's a it's a small topic that illustrates a massive topic. it's a biography of oj but actually it's about the relationship between black america and the american establishment over 40 50 years maybe even longer and the great irony at the heart of it is this is a man who he talks a lot about how he never sees himself as a black american he sees himself as raceless as colorless and avoids all the black power and civil rights causes of the 60s and 70s and yet ultimately is probably saved as he recognizes during the trial by the fact that he's a black man in the wake of the Rodney King riots and it is it's it's a it's an extraordinary irony but it illustrates this huge theme about American life which which is absolutely brilliantly done. I should say it is seven hours long. It's, yeah. n- it's, not, it's not something you do uh, you know, over, over lunch or dinner. It's a very, very long documentary, but it is totally gripping. You can't pull yourself but away from it. But think of it as a season, you know, as a series that you, you, yeah. you would watch, and, and it, it's absolutely worth your time. So that's it uh, for this show. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time on The Deep Dive. Bye.